We're sure it's not escaped your notice that this month marked the 75th anniversary of the founding of the NHS. Commemorative coins have been minted, a special service was held at Westminster Abbey to mark the anniversary, and there was even an episode of the repair shop dedicated to the occasion. And while it's good and right to celebrate our National Health Service, we all know that the challenges facing the NHS have never been greater. Hello and welcome to the King's Fund podcast, where we explore the big issues and ideas in health and care. I'm Jo Vigor, and I'm delighted to be joined by two colleagues from the analyst team at the King's Fund, Danielle Jeffries and Siva Anadasiva. Danielle, Siva, welcome to the podcast. Delighted to be talking with you today. Thanks for having us, Jo. Hi, Jo. Hi, both of you. So we're going to start off the conversation um, today by looking back at the NHS in its 75 years and really starting to think about its origins and what was going on for it 75 or even 50 years ago. And Danielle, you've recently dived into the King's Fund archive to take a look at what the fund was saying in the early years of the NHS First of all, I want to know if you found anything bizarre or surprising in your role as our historical Sherlock. Yeah, so a few surprising things, but I think the most surprising thing is just how many similarities you can pick out. So despite how different the NHS, the King's Fund and society are, and how much has changed in the last 75 years, you can still see some common themes and some common language. So if you think about 75 years ago, it's a very different context. We were recovering from World War II. We were thinking about infectious diseases when it came to health, so things like tuberculosis. And fast forward today, we're in a very different context. So recovering from a pandemic, we're thinking about heart disease, Alzheimer's, these kinds of things instead. But despite those differences, if you look back on our archives, we're talking about things like workforce shortages, waiting lists for elective care, supporting staff and their well-being, and how we get people and support people moving out of hospital into the community. So really surprising that we're still talking about similar things. And actually, it's almost bizarre. You can look back into our archives and pick out quotes that could very easily just slot straight into one of our current publications, which is very interesting and very surprising to me. But I guess when I thought about it a bit more, it kind of makes sense because these things are about staff, they're about patients, they're about patient care and ourselves at the King's Fund and the the NHS are always going to care about these things and talk about these things. I think Danielle's absolutely right that there's some fundamental issues that you'll always come back to. You know, is there enough money for the service? Are there enough staff? But when when we look back, one of the things we really want to avoid is this sense of, you know, plus de change, plus de même shows that no matter what you do, there'll never be enough staff, there'll never be uh, enough money. And, you know, 25 years ago, these debates were in a completely different place. The fundamental issues remain, but the sort of tone and tenor of where the service is at any given point in time can be radically different. Absolutely. I was going to ask both of you actually about that because the themes are there, they they translate. But is there anything specific that's come out for you as you were doing that research? Is there something you can just bring some of this to life that you were really surprised about? Yeah, so for me, the the strongest example was about nursing retention and recruitment. So 
in our archives with talking about things like um, flexible working options, providing training opportunities, supporting the health and well-being of staff. And these are all things that feel very applicable today, even though we were talking about them 75 years ago. The, the context is very different. So I don't think um, many nurses today are thinking about gymnastics lessons, for example, or an x-ray on the first day to check for TB. But the concepts and the, the ideas are still there. So that's very much saying that we need to listen to staff and what they need. So what do they need as employees? What do they need as people in the current context in their society? And how do we listen to that and make sure we're catering to those needs, even if the needs have changed a lot in the last 75 years? Daniel, I think that's really, really helpful to be outlining that. So it reminds me of some of the work that we're doing now um, today in terms of leadership work with um, clinicians and nurses and how um, it's rooted in some of the research of the 1950s and 60s, which was looking at how do people deal with uncertainty and emergence in their roles. But the way that we talk about uncertainty and emergence today with our leaders and our managers is very different to how we've done that in the past. So there's been a there's been a shift in that thinking. I think a very helpful shift as we move towards different models of leadership in today's world around compassion and kindness and inclusion um, and away from some of that more command and control piece as well. So I'm just going to go on to another question to both of you around the NHS has endured uh, through some real major societal events. What do you think this tells us about the health service in terms of its ability to adapt and evolve? Does this give you hope for the current challenges? Because there's a lot of rhetoric around at the moment about things are broken. We've got to really do some mass transformational change and, and move to different models around this. But what's, what's your reflections on, on that? What would you say to our listeners? So for me, it would definitely gives me hope. So yes, the NHS is not in a good place at the moment for staff or for patients or the system. But if we think about the last 75 years and how far the NHS has come, at the moment it's still delivering a lot of amazing care and it's helping pe millions of people every day. It's contributed to an increase in life expectancy over that time, almost a decade. And we're no longer thinking about tuberculosis and infectious diseases. We've changed the picture of health over the last 75 years which should, should be encouraging in some sense because the NHS has supported and survived for the last 75 years, despite how much has changed. At the moment, it's about how do we support the NHS in this next phase? How do we support it so it continues on for another 75 years? Yeah, I agree. And and for me, it's, it's one of these classic sort of, we overestimate how much change is possible in two years, but underestimate how much change is possible in 10 years kind of scenarios where, you know, to be honest, anytime I'm getting down over the health service and how bad things are, I think back to something Don Berwick, you know, this em eminent professor from the state said, because uh, he's a consultant pediatrician. And it was just a throwaway remark in one of his speeches he was giving where he said, you know, when I was training as a pediatrician, all the kids I saw with leukemia died. And now most of them live. And it's that sort of thing where, you know, shared decision making, safety, all of these things, even in my lifetime, I've seen progress. So, yes, I'm not for one minute denying the reality of how bad it is, but there is still hope. 
thank you. I mean, I think that's a great message um, for listeners. And and let's just let's just stop a moment. And th- we've been talking about the NHS here, and it's seventy five years. But of course, the health of the nation is not all about the National Health Service. You know, social care plays a huge um, role in um, supporting the health and care of the nation, as do carers, as do other agencies. So just picking up on one of those areas, what impact does the crisis in social care have on today's NHS? So the NHS and social care are completely dependent on one another, and I think it's no coincidence that we're also celebrating the 75th anniversary of the start of the social care system in this country because we can't have one without the other. So we've been thinking about how do we support people in the community, not necessarily in hospital, for actually the last 75 years. And we're we're still talking about it because we haven't quite sorted how social care supports the NHS and vice versa. So we need social care in order to help care for people in the community rather than in a hospital bed. And that problem has increased over the last 75 years. We've got an ageing population and looking forward, the problem is only going to increase even more. So by 2045, we're expected to have double the population over 85, which is going to put a huge pressure on both the NHS and social care. So when we think about these two things, we need to think about them together and how do we support and grow both of them together. Just on on the need for optimism... I know social care has not been fixed. I know there have been repeated promises. But again, honestly, when I started my career, actually, literally when I started my career in the Department of Health, I had my intro meeting with my director and I was with another newbie at the same time. And we were asking about the Department of Health because it was still called the Department of Health back then, his priorities. And at one point in the conversation, she said, and how much analytical work do we get to do on social care? And I'm, I'm not exaggerating. I didn't know what the word social care meant. And now there is no chance I would have got that job and be in that room if I didn't know it. So I think definitely the awareness of the interdependency that Danielle's talked about has gone up. And it feels like one of the precipices. I I honestly cannot think how a government over the next 10 years could come into power without a reasonable plan for tackling adult social care and the crisis that's going on there. So we've talked about our NHS um, in England and the UK in its last 75 years. But I think there's some opportunity now to really look across the globe and across and into other countries. Siva, you've recently authored a, a report comparing the NHS to other health systems across the world. What did you learn and why do you think this type of analysis often appears around major anniversaries of our health and care system? I'll start with the second bit. Why Why do we do it? I think, you know, to be honest, it's it can be quite habit-forming. You know, every five years, another birthday or anniversary comes around and you think, well, let's, let's update what's happened before. Because I think you do, think tanks do one of two things. They either commission lots of interviews from the great and the good to give a perspective on the health system as it is at the moment and where it's going, or they update this analysis of how do we compare to other countries. And I think I think we do it for you know, not just because it's habit forming, but partly because there's this constant need to calibrate how good the system is. So you look over your shoulder at another country and see how are they doing? Is there anything we can learn from? The other thing is tied to what Daniel was saying about data from the past. It's actually surprising how little comparable data we have over the long history of the NHS. You know, we can tell how much we spent on it, but it's very hard to say, are you in a relatively good place or a relatively bad place? So we look across more than we look back sometimes. 
But the first thing you asked was, what did we learn? You know, I know it sounds a bit counterintuitive, but the first thing I learned was to be really, really cautious when you do these types of international comparisons. And I think anyone who does it, and, you know, Danielle saw this as well, you look at something like the number of MRI and CT scanners we have, and you think, well, that's pretty pretty easy. You just go around every country and count how many MRI or CT scanners there are. And that's when you get into the real detail of, have you captured all the resource in the private care sector? How big is the private care sector? Is your um, is your count up to date? And all of these things can, can really make you very cautious when you make comparisons. But overall, I would say having done the work, a few things really did stick out. The first is that our healthcare system is, is broadly middle of the pack compared to our peers, compared to France, Germany, the Netherlands, some of the countries that, that we would consider as higher income European nations. We have fewer resources. I think this is one of the things that really came through staff, equipment, um, anything basically that you fundamentally need to run a healthcare service. We're either at the bottom or towards the bottom of the league table. We have really poor healthcare outcomes. So yes, there are things that are affected by wider society, by life expectancy. But even if you look at things that are within the gift of a health care service like recovery from stroke and heart attacks we do poorly we do poorly compared to our neighbors um, but it wasn't all bad there were some things that we do really well like our performance on some measures of efficiency and some things that are in all in all honesty harder to evidence but come through more in the qualitative data where we really do have a nationalized healthcare system so whether it's something like the recovery trial during covid or when icu capacity is reaching you know, a real breaking point, the benefits of having a system where you can get all the leaders basically on one WhatsApp group and try and coordinate things is probably not to be underestimated. Thanks, Sarah. I mean, there's a lot to unpick there, isn't there? A lot to think through. Yeah, sorry, um, very long answer. No, no, no. It's, it's, it, I, I think it's all really, really interesting. And that whole piece around being cautious about what, what we're measuring and how we're measuring that is is a is a really good lesson as well. Oh on that I mean, Joe, can I tell you my can I tell you the about the Limoncello model of comparative health policy, which is is not actually a model. I'm trying to introduce it. But the idea is you go to Sorrento or somewhere on the Amalfi coast and you have this wonderful meal in the cool balmy evening. And then at the end they bring over this chilled shot of Limoncello and and, you know, this is clearly a personal story. I tried it and thought it was amazing, you know, refreshing, crisp. And so me and my wife bought this massive bottle of limoncello and duty-free on the way back home. And then when we cracked it open in our sort of rainy February evening in Bethnal Green, we were thinking, what, this is awful. Why have we done this? And we do the same thing with other healthcare systems. So we sort of look at how they deliver care in Alaska in, in NUCA multidisciplinary teams. And we just think, let's import it. Or you look at the Bertzog model of nursing care in the Netherlands and say, let's, let's bring that over. And all the work that colleagues like Joe Mabin uh, here have done have shown, it's not impossible, but there's a reason why it's so embedded, these, these healthcare improvements in the culture of that host country. So you need to be aware of that before you try and import something. Absolutely. And we've certainly found through our work that you really need to understand your own context well. And taking the international piece, it's, there's no cookie cutter approach to this. You have to think about why does that work? How long has that taken for them to do that? And why does it work in their context? And then what's the translation into ours? So I really, really like the parallel with the Lemoncello experience there, Siva. That's great. Thank you. I mean, the report itself, how's that been received? And 
what have people said to you in conversations that you've had since? What stood out to them? Oh, good question. Um, I would say there's different responses from different types of people. I'd say there's one group of people where the international comparisons of the NHS was new info that they found interesting and informative and, and were just glad to have it. I'd say there were some people where it was, they broadly had an idea of what was what the issues were, but it was helpful to have it all collated. So I'd say that was the, it wasn't interesting, but it was convenient. And then I'd say there was a group of people where it's, we knew all this, why, why have you done it again? So there was a split there, but I'd say most people fell into that first bucket, which was interesting in of itself of this is new, interesting info. Um, the other thing I'd say is it's been interesting how the same informational statistic can be used equally to further um, further the arguments of people either on the left or the right of politics, or whether you're pro or anti the current model of the NHS. So the same figure about healthcare outcomes I've seen used as we have a fundamentally good model of healthcare, it just needs more resources. And I've seen it used as, look what our model of healthcare produces, we need a completely different model of healthcare. So I think it's, uh, it can be used, you know, once you leave, once it leaves a building, it can be used by other people in any way they want. Yeah. And, and maybe the important thing here is that we're doing work that stimulates conversation and knowledge gathering and awareness and stimulates that dialogue around what does this mean in terms of our context as well. Yeah, so I, I think you're absolutely yeah. right. And I, I think it goes back to this, why do we do this type of work? There is something absolutely normal about being curious about how other healthcare systems are performing. Why wouldn't you look at other countries and see how they're doing? And just to be clear, sorry, I, I think the report was unequivocal. Our current model of healthcare is not is not the issue to address. You know, we've we've performed well with this model of healthcare in the past. I'd say look at the resources, do more on the health care outcomes, but don't try and fundamentally change how the NHS is organized and structured and funded. This just takes me on to the next question. So we've talked about our how we're looking at other um, health systems around the world. But you've spoken to experts in various different countries. What did you learn about their system? So we spoke to we spoke to people from Singapore and from Germany. And I think one one of the things was just how I, I was glad we did the qualitative interviews, because that's where you really understand the different approaches people take to healthcare and just how fundamentally different cultures are. So from Sing um, actually maybe I'll start with Germany. One of the things that really came through was this issue of pride. You know, we we were talking about how in the UK the NHS routinely tops polls of what makes you proudest to be British. And I remember the the person I was speaking to saying, you know, pride can be a really dangerous emotion. And do I have high expectations of my healthcare system in Germany? Absolutely. But they're expectations. I'm not proud of it. You know, I'm proud of the grades my kids get in school. I'm proud of them doing well at piano lessons, but pride can hold you back sometimes from changing your healthcare system. So that was one thing that came through strongly. The other thing that came through was this sense of the national bit of the health service we have in this country. And I know it, it doesn't sound like a big deal, but I think it is a big deal that he was saying things like clinical audit. You know, you can have one database that pulls in information on fractured neck of femurs from across every bit of the NHS and use that to further, whether it's research or improving how services are delivered. When you've got more atomized healthcare systems out there, it's just so much harder. So I think I think we sometimes take the NHS for granted in that regard. And from Singapore, 
I guess I guess it was interesting to see different approaches to things that I would say are more cultural rather than operational. So data sharing, you know, obviously they have safeguards in place for sharing healthcare data. But one of the people from Singapore said, if I'm a citizen, I presume that my healthcare system knows about me and that information is shared appropriately so that I'm not telling my story over and over again. And I was thinking, you know, that feels about 10 years ahead. Danielle, listening to Sivir and working alongside him on this this work, is there anything you want to add um, from your perspective? So I think what was most interesting to, to hear about the interview Sivir did is just how how differently we think about healthcare in different countries. So just some of the examples of um, hearing how technologically forward other countries are and how they see that as normal, whereas here in the NHS um, you can describe things and it would be a dream come true for some of the things that Siva described and heard in places like Singapore. So just how different we are to other countries was quite surprising and quite interesting and especially if we start thinking about what makes us proud to to have an NHS and why are we proud of that and what aspects should we be proud about and what aspects should we be thinking more closely and thinking more closely about changing. Yeah, that's a really good point. Do you know what? They both you know, both Singapore and Germany representatives were embarrassed at points, I would say. So at one point the the person from Singapore said, Oh, we're not really that good. You know, don't don't pick us up. And then went on to describe exactly as Danielle said, how technologically they were they were streets ahead of us, and from Germany, you know, their their capacity, their bed capacity in hospitals, was so much higher than ours. And they were talking about how their experience of COVID was so different. And it and again, it was oh yes, but we do we do spend a lot on our healthcare system. And I was just thinking, as as a citizen rather than a policy analyst, I'd love to be in the position where I'm embarrassed at how well my healthcare system's performing. And I'm curious as well because the space that I work in in the King's Fund is around workforce and people. Um, and leaders. When you were talking to um, people from Germany and Singapore, were they coming up with some of the same workforce challenges that we're experiencing here in the UK? Or were there some similarities there? Not really, to be honest. I mean, it was stunning um, in that sense that, you know, obviously a lot of the workforce problems and staffing shortages are a global issue. But in terms of where they were in the priority list, I'd say the acute staffing shortages in the health and social care workforce and things like tackling backlogs of care that built up during the pandemic are two things that are right up at the top of the policy agenda in this country that are that are just not given the same prominence you know they and i think partly it's where their system is but also how they think about their system because everything seemed to be on a much longer horizon you know singapore was thinking about they were saying things like, well, we're really thinking about where primary care should be over the next 15 to 20 years. So it, it felt less like, how do we get through the current crisis and more, where do we want our system to evolve to? I think there's some lessons there, isn't there, Sibra and Danielle, about some of that long-term strategic planning and getting people from those from our NHS and social care system involved in that thinking as well. So thank you. Thank you for that. The report also predominantly looks at performance. Is there anything else you'd want to learn from the health systems of other countries? And I've just picked up the piece about workforce, but is there anything else that you'd want to share with our listeners today? Oh, gosh, yeah, loads. I mean, I suppose you're right. The, the report focused on performance and I'd say, how do we do 
against other countries. So one of the things is, why do we differ to other countries and how they've improved in some of the big areas that that makes sense to look at at a country level, at a national level? So I know I know people talk about it a lot in health policy, but what Estonia has done on its digital policy, things like adult social care reform in Germany and Japan, that's the sort of thing where it's it's really interesting to see how they've had that sort of big national conversation with the public that makes sense to do at a, at a national level. So more on the how of where change happens. I suppose the second area is, I'd say not national, but international learning of individual healthcare systems. And we do it from time to time at the King's Fund, but the work you're potentially doing on Rush Medical the work we've done before with the Montefiore system in the Bronx, I think that's really helpful because you can see how a hospital system or an integrated care board in this country can look across and say, I can see how I can take some of those principles and apply them to my work. But it's an international comparison below the national level. And I guess two final ones. One is about countries that weren't in our basket. Because we were trying to compare things like average length of stay and spending, we picked a fairly as close as we could to a homogenous basket. I think some of the work that's been done in other continents that we don't normally look at, including Asia, East Asia, uh, Africa, you know, what they're doing on primary care reform in Brazil, Costa Rica, all of these countries that are not normally included in our basket, I think are great examples of learning. And the final one is, I've just got a niche interest in things that are really hard to measure, you know, like you a bit, Joe, of clinical leadership and management. You know, almost every secretary of state I've lived through has said at some point we need to get more clinicians into management. The approach to clinicians in management in countries like the US and Canada is so completely different. You know, here I still run into medical directors where people have said, you know, it's your turn, uh, do it for a couple of years and then you can be released. While in other countries it is a prize. You know, you want to move into a management career. So I, I'm always interested in learning more about how the countries do on leadership as well. Absolutely. So, I mean, passion for me as well. And you're so right. Lots of the stories that we hear from our own system are about, it's almost like you're on, rota- on rotation and really, you know, you've, you've got the poison chalice for the next couple of years, please go on with it. Whereas actually we should be celebrating those skills um, as something that you need to master and that you should be doing that earlier on in your career. So I think we'll be really pushing Um, and talking to some of the universities about how they include that in their curricula, how do we change the education approach to um, uh, clinical uh, professions as well. So I think we've got a lot of work to do here and a a lot of things we can draw on, again, from across the globe. So thank you for that. Thank you for picking that up. Daniel, is there anything else as we just come to a close that you want to add at this stage uh, that you think would be helpful for people? So I think the final thing I'd pick up on is in the report, we talk a lot about international recruitment. And I found it interesting linking that back with the history of the NHS and also that we're also at the 75th anniversary of Windrush and our long history of international recruitment, how we bring people into this country and support them and support them in the NHS and the the work they do. And I think it was just interesting to see in the report how other countries approach international recruitment and how that differed quite a lot. So we take quite a lot of international recruits compared to other countries. And I thought it was interesting to be able to see that those numbers and see how those other countries are approaching it too. And maybe there's a different way to think about it. I think that would be really, really helpful, Danielle. Again, I think there's, 
we're hearing um, anecdotal stories of 50% of some of our clinical gaps are being filled by overseas recruitment. How are those people being treated? How are we ensuring and helping people when they're bringing their families over to be integrated within their local communities? And I think there's a lot of work to be done there, as well as some of the discussion around the ethics of some of that from a sustainable point of view. So um, lots to go out there and lots to maybe look back over that 75 years um, in relation to what's happened and what's worked well and what could be better if from that point of view. See you in five years, I guess. Yeah, let's see what the future brings. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks, Danielle. And thanks for your stories um, around hope as well. So that's all we've got time for today. Thank you to Danielle and Siva for joining me. And you can read the report we've been discussing on our website, www.kingsfund.org.uk. The show notes for this episode and all our episodes can be found at www.kingsfund.org.uk forward slash KF podcast. And you can get in touch with us via Twitter. Our account is at the Kings Fund. The producer of this episode was Emma Sheffield and it has been edited by Bespoken Media. Don't forget to subscribe, share, rate and review this episode wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, thank you for listening. We hope you can join us next time.